You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 62, by Rudolf Steiner, 14 lectures, entitled Results of Spiritual Research, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLang. This is Lecture 10, given in Berlin on the 6th of February, 1913, entitled Fairy Tale Literature in the Light of Spiritual Research. There are several reasons why it may appear risky to speak about fairy tales in the light of spiritual research. One is the difficulty of the subject, for the sources of the true fairy tale mood lie so deep within the human soul that those methods of spiritual research that I have often described have to engage in a long and complicated process if these sources are to be found. The sources whence true, genuine fairy tales flow lie far deeper than one might think, since they speak to us of something magical that derives from many centuries of human evolution. The second is that precisely because of this magical quality, one strongly has the feeling that the elemental nature and spontaneity, even the very effect of fairy tales, may be destroyed by studying them, by imposing one's own ideas upon them. It is often said, and rightly so, that explanations and analyses of poetry destroy the immediate aesthetic impression, the living quality that a poem should be able to make if one has a direct, unvarnished impression of it. And this applies all the more to the infinitely subtle and magical quality of what arises in the form of fairy tales from the deep, unfathomable sources of the popular imagination or of individual human hearts. Indeed, to seek to impose one's judgment on what springs so primordially from the human soul as this fairy tale literature could be seen as being like destroying the blossom of a plant. Nevertheless, it seems that On the one hand, it is possible for the methods of spiritual research to shed at least some light upon those regions of soul life whence the substance and mood of fairy tales derive. On the other hand, this also enables something to be placed against the second consideration. Precisely because the sources of fairy tales have to be sought so deeply in the soul, one comes purely out of experience to the conviction that what one has to give by way of a spiritual scientific explanation remains something that so gently touches those sources that they are not only not adversely affected, but, on the contrary, the inherent depth and significance of that region in the human soul whence the fairy tale mood derives is such that one has the feeling that what can be found there is on each occasion so new so individual and so primordial for the human soul that it may itself best be spoken of in the manner of a fairy tale. For one feels that it is impossible to speak about these hidden springs in any other way. Thus it could seem quite natural that when someone like Goethe, who, in addition to his work as an artist, sought to fathom the sources and foundations of existence, wants to describe what lives in the human soul at its deepest level, he does not embark upon theoretical arguments or destroy the wellsprings of the fairy-tale world through his research, but gives expression to his insight into this world by means of a fairy-tale. Hence, in his title, Fairy-Tale of the Green Snake and the Beautiful Lily, Goethe tried to express in his own way the deep experiences of the human soul that Schiller put forward in a more abstract philosophical way, in his letters titled On the Aesthetic Education of Man. The very nature of the fairy tale mood entails that trying to explain and understand it will probably never destroy its creative quality. For anyone who, from the standpoint of spiritual research, penetrates to the wellsprings referred to will discover something quite remarkable. 
If I were to say everything that I should like to about the nature of fairy tales, I would have to give many lectures. Today it will only be possible to mention a few indications and some results of my research. Anyone who tries to explore the sources of fairy tales from the standpoint of spiritual research will find that these wellsprings of the fairy tale world lie much deeper in the human soul than the sources of the aspect of the soul which creates and enjoys culture and also finds expression in the most powerful works of art, for example, the most deeply gripping tragedies. Tragedy portrays the human soul's experience of the powers of which the poet says that they emanate from the massive destiny-laden forces that both exalt and crush human beings. The shocks of tragedy derive from these wheels of fate and the way they are portrayed, but in such a way that we can say that the tangled threads that are woven and then unraveled through tragedy relate more or less to certain individual experiences of the human soul with the outside world experiences which are difficult to discern because it is not easy to penetrate into the individual nature of the human soul, but which can nevertheless be intuited if one has a sense for what occurs within the human soul through its relation to life. One has the feeling that a soul has in one way or another been caught up within a particular event of destiny when it experiences tragedy as it is portrayed to us. The sources of the mood and diction of fairy tales lie much deeper than the entanglements of tragedy. We feel that tragedy, and also much else in the artistic realm, arises when, for example, we see a person exposed to the workings of destiny at a particular time, in a particular period of life. When a tragedy is being enacted before us, we must presuppose that a human being has been brought to the predicament in question through an individual experience. And we then have the feeling that it is this one person who comes before us in the tragedy with his particular experiences whom we must understand. A certain circumscribed sphere of human life is presented to us in tragedy and in other works of art. When we approach fairy tales and the mood associated with them, with understanding, we have a different feeling which contrasts with the one just described, because the effect of a fairy tale upon the human soul has something primordial and elemental about it, so that it remains unconscious. When we try to acquire a feeling for it, we become aware that what comes to expression in the various fairy tales does not lie in what is brought to a person in a particular situation of life. It is not a limited portion of human experience, but is something so deeply entrenched in the experiences of the human soul that it is of universal human significance. We cannot say that it is about a particular human soul of a certain age and life situation. For what comes to expression in the fairy tale is so deeply rooted in the soul that it can be experienced equally by children in their early years, by people of middle age, and by the elderly. That which comes to expression in a fairy tale reflects our deepest experiences throughout our lives. Nevertheless, the fairy tale is a free and often playful pictorial expression of these experiences and what lies at their foundation. The aesthetic, artistic enjoyment of a fairy tale is perhaps as far removed for the soul from what corresponds in the fairy tale to one's inner experiences as, to make a bold comparison, the experience of taste on the tongue when we are enjoying a meal is removed from the hidden complicated processes that the food undergoes in our bodily organism in order that it may be nourished by it. What happens in this regard is not initially apparent to our observation or understanding and all that a person has is the pleasure of tasting the food. Both aspects seem initially to have little to do with each other. 
and no one is able to establish, from the taste of the meal, anything about the role that this food plays in the whole life process of the human organism. The aesthetic pleasure that a person experiences in a fairy tale is likewise far, far removed from what happens in the deep unconscious regions of the human soul when the essence of what lives in the fairy tale unites with the human soul. Because this soul has an undying need to have the substance of the fairy tale flowing in its spiritual veins, just as the organism has a need to have the nutriments, the nourishing substance in bodily circulation. If one uses the methods that have been described here as methods of spiritual research, methods of research into the spiritual worlds, one will at a certain stage of spiritual knowledge discover that spiritual processes are wholly unbeknown to the human soul working within its depths. In ordinary normal life, these processes that are at work in the depths of the soul come to our awareness only sometimes as gentle dream experiences that can also be apprehended on occasion by our waking consciousness. When a person is under especially favorable circumstances, awakening from sleep, he can have the feeling you are emerging from a spiritual world where there is thinking and where there are intentions and where something was happening in the deep, unfathomable foundations of existence that is somehow similar to daily experiences and is intimately connected with your whole being, but which is deeply hidden from your daily waking life. When the spirit researcher has progressed to the extent of being able to experience a world of spiritual beings and spiritual realities, he may often meet with something of this kind, However far he progresses, he nonetheless again and again reaches the shore of a world where spiritual processes or impulses come toward him out of a deep unconsciousness. And he says of these impulses, they are connected with your being. You can apprehend them somewhat as a fata morgana, which appears before your spiritual sight, but they do not wholly yield themselves up to you. This awareness of the unfathomable nature of the spiritual relationships in which the human soul is involved is the most remarkable experience that one can have. If one attentively accompanies certain intimate soul processes, it may, for example, emerge that those emotional conflicts that a person also experiences in the depths of the soul and which he portrays in works of art and in tragic drama are relatively easy to understand as compared with some universally human soul conflicts of which there is no awareness in ordinary waking life, even though all people of whatever age have to deal with them. One such soul conflict that one discovers through spiritual research is enacted, without one's everyday consciousness being aware of it, every day on waking up, when the soul leaves the world where it dwells unconsciously during sleep, when it re-enters its physical body. As said, one's everyday consciousness has no awareness of it. And yet it is a matter of the soul's daily experience that it is engaged in a battle that is all-encompassing and which one may call the battle of the separate, inwardly focused, solitary and spiritually seeking soul with the gigantic forces of nature, forces which we confront in outer life when we stand there more or less helplessly and experience thunder and lightning and the elements of nature unburdening themselves upon helpless human beings. But all this, even when it manifests itself with immense power in relation to man in certain rare freaks of nature, is a small thing as compared with a battle that remains in the unconscious, that takes place when one awakes, when the soul, which has an inner experience of its soul existence, has to unite with the forces and substances of the purely physical body into which it dives down in order to avail itself of its senses 
which are governed by nature forces, and its limbs in which nature forces are at work. The human soul has a kind of yearning to submerge itself in this purely natural state, a yearning that is fulfilled every time one wakes up. And at the same time, there is a tendency to shrink back, to feel helpless with regard to what exists as an eternal opposition to the human soul, with regard to the purely natural state prevailing in the physical form in which one awakes. However strange it sounds that such a battle is enacted every day within the human soul, it is nevertheless an experience that passes by the human soul in complete unconsciousness. The soul cannot know what it undergoes then, but it experiences this battle anew every morning, and despite not knowing anything about it, every soul is affected by this battle in all its qualities, in its very nature, and in the individual character of its being. Something else that occurs in the depths of the human soul, and can to some extent be apprehended through spiritual research, is associated with the moment of falling asleep. When the human soul has withdrawn from the senses and the limbs, when it has in a certain sense left its body behind in the physical world of the senses, what comes toward it is a feeling of its inwardness. Only then does it unconsciously experience the inner battles that are caused by its being tied to outward matter and having to do things that are the consequence of its being entangled with it. It feels itself as an appendage of the sense world with which it is encumbered, and it feels this affinity as an impediment which holds it back in a moral sense, a moral mood such as cannot be compared with all ordinary moral impulses pervades the soul when it is alone with itself. And there are many other moods that occur in the soul when it is free of the body, when it leads a purely spiritual existence from going to sleep to waking up. However, one should not think that all these occurrences taking place in the depths of the soul are not present in waking consciousness. Spiritual research can exemplify this by means of a very interesting example. It shows that a person does not only dream when he believes that he does, but he dreams the whole day. In truth, the soul is always full of dreams. And it is only because waking consciousness is more forceful than dream consciousness that they are not noticed. Just as a fainter light is made invisible through the presence of a more powerful light, day consciousness extinguishes the dream experience in the depths of the soul that is its constant companion. A person dreams all the time, but he is not always aware of it. And out of the abundance of unconscious dream experiences, which are infinitely greater in number than the experiences of waking consciousness, the dreams that come to consciousness rise to the surface rather as single drops of water emerging from the water of an extensive lake. But these dreams that remain unconscious constitute a spiritual experience of the soul, in whose depths a wealth of experiences are therefore taking place. Just as chemical processes occur unconsciously in the body, there are spiritual experiences taking place in unconscious regions of the soul. If we now bring what has been said here together, with something that has already been mentioned previously, this will shed a different light upon the hidden aspects of soul life of which we have been speaking. We have often emphasized, and especially in the previous lecture, that in the course of human evolution on earth, the whole of human soul life has changed. When we look far, far back into the course of human evolution, we find that in ancient times the experiences of the human soul were quite different from those of today. We have already spoken, and will continue to speak in future lectures, of how early man had a certain primordial clairvoyance, 
the way of perceiving the world that is the norm for the soul today in waking consciousness, where we take in sense impressions through external stimuli and bring these sense impressions together in our modern consciousness by means of our reasoning powers, feelings and will, is only that of the present. It has evolved out of older forms of human consciousness, which, in the best sense of the word, were of a more clairvoyant nature, when people were in certain intermediate states, between waking and sleeping, able quite normally to experience something of the spiritual worlds. Thus, even though a person could not at that time become conscious of himself, he found that those experiences that occur in the depths of the soul were less foreign to his normal consciousness than today's situation would indicate. In ancient times, people saw their connection with the spiritual world outside themselves. They saw that what was taking place deeply within their souls was connected with certain spiritual realities in the universe. This was a quality of the primordial clairvoyance of mankind. And whereas people today can have the feeling that I am going to describe only in quite particular moods, in those former times it was a frequent occurrence, not only for those of an artistic inclination, but by virtue of being of their time. It can happen that in the depths of the soul there resides, in however vague and indeterminate a form, an experience that does not come to the surface of consciousness, an experience such as has been described occurring in the depths of the soul. Nothing of this experience comes to conscious awareness. But something is there in the soul just as hunger is present in the physical organism. And just as one needs something to satisfy one's hunger, so is there also a need for something to satisfy this indeterminate mood that originates from this experience lying deeply within the soul. One then feels the urge either to resort to a familiar fairy tale or legend, or perhaps, if one is artistically inclined, to create something of this kind oneself, even though one senses that all the words that one can theoretically use replicate these experiences only in a somewhat incoherent way. This is how the images of fairy tales arise. This conscious filling of the soul with fairy tale images is the soul's nourishment with respect to the hunger that has just been characterized. Because in former times of human evolution every human soul was still closer to a clairvoyant perception of its inner spiritual experiences, the simple country folk, in that they sensed this hunger more clearly than can be the case today, were in a position to seek nourishment in pictures that arose from their creative soul life and which we have today in the fairy tale traditions of the various peoples. The human soul felt its connection with spiritual existence. It felt more or less consciously the inner battles that it had to endure without understanding them. And it formulated them in pictures which, therefore, have only a distant similarity to what was living in the depths of the soul. And yet one can feel that there is a connection between what is expressed in the fairy tale and these unfathomably deep experiences of the human soul. As one can learn from experience, a child's inner sensibility is often able to create for itself a simple companion, a friend, who exists only for the child itself, but who accompanies it and participates in all the various things it does. Probably everyone knows children who have such invisible friends as constant companions, friends whom you must imagine as being there when something happens that the children like who must participate as invisible spiritual or soul companions when the child has an experience of whatever kind. One will not infrequently experience what a bad effect it has on a child's feeling life when a so-called, in quotes, intelligent person appears and on hearing that the child has such a soul companion tries to talk the child out of it 
and even perhaps considers this to be a beneficial thing to do. The child grieves for its invisible companion, and if it is receptive to soul-spiritual moods, this sorrow will have all the greater significance and may develop into ill health and infirmity. This is a thoroughly real experience that is related to deeply inward occurrences in the human soul. Without dissipating the, in quotes, aroma of the fairy tale, we can feel this simple experience in the tale of the child and the fire-bellied toad as related by the brothers Grimm. The story that they tell is of a child who always shares her food with a toad, although the toad only likes milk. The child speaks with the animal as with a human being. Then one day she wants the toad to share its bread as well. The mother hears of this and comes and kills the toad. The child pines away, sickens, and dies. In this tale we can feel an echo of soul moods that are truly present in the depths of the soul, and moreover, not only in particular periods of life, but simply through human nature being what it is, irrespective of whether one is a child or an adult. Thus every human soul can feel a reverberation of the fact that what it experiences and does not understand and does not even bring to consciousness is connected with the effect of the fairy tale on the soul in the same way that the taste of food has an influence on the tongue. And then the fairy tale becomes something similar for the soul to nutritious food that is used for the body. It is an appealing thought to search in these deep soul experiences for what reverberates in the various fairy tales. It would, of course, be a massive task to examine all the many fairy tales that have been collected from this point of view, and it would take much time to do this. However, what can be discerned in particular fairy tales can be applied to all the genuine fairy tales that one can find. Let us take another tale from the Brothers Grimm, also collected, the story of Rumpelstiltskin. The miller who claims to the king that his daughter can spin straw into gold is asked by the king to bring his daughter to the castle to show what she can do. The daughter comes to the castle. She is locked in a room and with a bundle of straw in order to test her prowess. When she is in the room, she is completely helpless. And in view of her plight, a little mannequin appears before her. He says to her, quote, What will you give me if I spin the straw into gold for you? Close quote. The miller's daughter gives him her necklace, and the mannequin spins the straw into gold. The king is full of amazement, but he wants more. And he tells her that she should spin more straw into gold. The miller's daughter is again locked in a room with a substantial amount of straw, and the mannequin again appears and says, Quote, what will you give me if I spin the straw into gold for you? She gives him a little ring, and again he spins the straw into gold. But the king wants even more. And when she is sitting in the room for the third time, she has nothing more to give him. The mannequin then says that if she becomes queen, she will give him her first child. She promises to do so. And when the child is born and the mannequin comes and reminds her of her promise, the miller's daughter asks him to wait. Whereupon the little man says to her, quote, If you call me by my name, you can be freed from your promise. Quote. The miller's daughter sends messages far and wide. She wants to know all names and the particular name of the mannequin. Finally, after several wrong guesses, she manages to discover the little man's name, Rumpelstiltskin. There is no other art form that so intensely gives one the feeling that one can experience the utmost inner joy in the directness of the imagery, and yet can also be aware of the deep soul experience out of which such a fairy tale has arisen. Even if the comparison may be somewhat lame, it could perhaps be appropriate to say that just as one may be well familiar with the chemical components of one's food and still take pleasure in something that's good to eat, it is also possible to know something 
about the deep inner soul experiences that are felt but not known, in quotes, and which come to expression in the manner indicated in the pictures of fairy tales. Indeed, this solitary human soul, for both in sleep and in waking life, even though it is connected with the body, it is solitary, feels but unconsciously, experiences but does not understand the whole polarity of the situation in which it is placed for its own infinite tasks, for the part it has to play in the world of the gods. The human soul is aware of how little it is capable of when it compares its abilities with what outer nature can accomplish, with its capacity to transform one thing into another. It is a great enchantress, which the human soul would so dearly like to be. In one's consciousness, one may manage to cope with good grace, with this disparity between one's inner being and the wisdom and omnipotence of the spirit of nature. But in the depths of the soul, the matter is not so simple. The human soul would come to grief if it were not to feel within its conscious being a still greater being, a being on whom it can rely and of whom it may say, however imperfect a stage you may be at now, this being that is within you is cleverer. It can raise you up to the highest achievements. It can give you wings so that you see before you an infinite perspective extending into an infinite future. You will be able to achieve something of which you are now not capable, for there is something in you that is endlessly greater than your knowledgeable self. It is a faithful helper to you. But you need to acquire a relationship to it. You need to form a concept of this being residing within you who is cleverer, wiser, and more skillful than you are yourself. As one tries to call to mind this conversation of the human soul with itself, this unconscious dialogue with a more capable part of the soul, one may then also try to feel a resonance of it in the fairy tale of Rumpelstiltskin, in what the soul experiences in the miller's daughter who is unable to spin straw into gold, but finds a skillful, faithful helper in the mannequin. In images whose aroma is not destroyed, if one knows their source, one can find a deeply inward soul life that lies deeply in the very foundations of the soul. We can also consider another tale. But first I hope you will not take it amiss if I connect it with things that seem to have a personal aspect, although there is no intention to focus on this dimension. It makes it somewhat easier to explain what I mean if I add this personal association. In my book titled Occult Science, readers aside also known as Esoteric science, both an outline of occult science and outline of esoteric science are the same, end of readers aside. You will find a description of the evolution of the world. I do not wish to speak about this now. This can happen on another occasion. Suffice it to say that in the course of this evolution, our Earth as a planet in the universe has passed through certain stages which we can compare with the successive lives of an individual human being. Just as a human individual passes through successive lives, our earth has likewise passed through various planetary stages of life or embodiments. For certain reasons we speak in spiritual science of the earth's having passed through a kind of moon existence before its earth existence began, and before this a kind of sun existence, so that we can say that in the far distant past there was a sun existence that was a planetary predecessor of our present earth existence, an old sun, which was still united with the earth. Then in the course of evolution there was a split between sun and earth. Both the moon and the modern sun, which is not that primordial sun but only a part of it, split off from the original sun, so that we can speak of the primordial sun and of its successor, the sun of today. We can also speak of the modern moon as having been engendered from old sun. Now, if spiritual research traces earthly evolution back to the point when the second sun, our present sun, developed as an independent cosmic body, one would have to say that the beings of the animal kingdom that would have been outwardly perceptible to the senses at that time included only those that had evolved up to the level of the fishes. 
These things can be pursued with greater precision in tidal occult science, but they can be discovered only through spiritual scientific methods of research. At the time when they were discovered, and I wrote them down, to be precise, they were not discovered when I wrote them down in occult science, but they were, so to speak, discovered for me, and I wrote them down, I was not familiar with the fairy tale in question. This is the personal aspect to which I have referred, and can state this absolutely, since I found it only later in Wundt's title Elements of Folk Psychology, and went on to trace it back to its source. Before I give a brief outline of the fairy tale, I need to point out that everything that the spirit researcher can investigate in the spiritual world, and what I have just said has to be researched in the spiritual world, since otherwise it loses its immediacy, is a reflection of the world with which the human soul is connected. We are connected with this world in the deepest foundation of our soul. It is always there. We enter this spiritual world unconsciously when we fall asleep in the normal way. Our soul is connected with it, and it has within itself not only those experiences that it has during sleep, but also those which are connected with the whole evolution that has just been summarized. It may seem paradoxical, but one can say that the soul unconsciously experiences itself in the stream of evolution that originated from the primordial sun, and then from the daughter sun that we now see shining in the heavens, and from the moon that is also the progeny of the original sun. And the human soul also experiences that in a soul-spiritual sense it has passed through an existence when it was not as yet associated with earthly processes, for example the time when the highest animal organisms were the prototypes of fish. And when the present sun and moon came into being and separated from the earth. The soul is in its unconscious regions connected with these events. We shall now briefly and in outline look at a fairy tale that can be found among primitive peoples. There was once a man, however, he was made of tree resin and could work only at night, for if he had carried out his work during the day, he would have been melted by the sun. One day, however, it happened that he went outside in order to catch some fish, and the man made of resin melted away. His sons decided to take revenge by shooting arrows, and the arrows that they shot formed particular figures, towering up one above the other, so that they became a ladder reaching right up into the sky. They climbed up this ladder, one during the day and the other during the night. The one became the sun, the other became the moon. It is not my custom to make abstract interpretations of such things and to play around with intellectual concepts, but it is an altogether different matter to be aware of the result arising from spiritual research that indicates that the human soul is connected in its depths with what happens in the world and can be understood only with spiritual means that this human soul is connected with everything that goes on and hungers to enjoy its deepest unconscious experiences in picture form. If one feels this, one will also feel the vibrations of what the human soul experienced as the primordial sun and as the emergence of sun and moon during the time of earthly fish development through the images of this folk tale. Again, to introduce a personal flavor, it was for me a most important experience when, long after these things were described in my title, Occult Science, I came across this particular tale. Even though it would never occur to me to explain all of this in an abstract way, a quite particular feeling that I have when I contemplate world evolution finds its twin in another when I give myself up to the wonderful images of this folk tale. Or let us take another story, this time a remarkable one of Melanesian origin. Before we speak of this fairy tale, let us recall that according to spiritual research, the human soul is also closely connected with the present happenings and realities of the universe. Although this is too pictorial a way of expressing it, it is nevertheless correct 
from a spiritual scientific viewpoint to say that when the human soul leaves the physical body in sleep, it leads an existence directly connected with the whole cosmos. It feels related with the whole cosmos. One possible way of calling to mind the relationship of the human soul, as exemplified in the human ego, with the cosmos, or at least with something significant in it, is to contemplate the plant world. Plants can grow only under the influence of sunlight and the warmth of the sun. We say in spiritual science that the plant that we see rooted in the earth consists of its physical body and the life body that pervades it. But this is not enough for the plant to grow and develop. For this, the forces that influence the plant from the sun are necessary. When we contemplate the human body while someone is asleep, this sleeping human being is, in a certain sense, equivalent to a plant. It has a similarity to a plant because it has the power to grow that the plant also has. But the human being is emancipated from that cosmic order within which the plant is enmeshed. The plant has to wait for the sunlight to influence it through its rising and setting. It is bound to the outward cosmic order. Man is not. Why is this? Because it is true what spiritual science shows, namely that the human ego, which in sleep is outside the physical body, thus giving it a plant-like aspect, develops for the physical body that which the sun develops for the plants. Just as the sun sheds its light on the plants, so does the human ego extend its radiance over the plant-like, sleeping physical body. As the sun presides over the plants, so does the human ego preside, spiritually, over the sleeping bodily organism. The human ego has an affinity with sun existence. Indeed, the ego is itself a kind of sun for the sleeping human body. It engenders its growth during sleep and enables those forces that have been used up during waking life to be replenished. When we become aware of this, we realize the extent to which the human ego is related to the sun. As the sun traverses the vault of the heavens, I am of course speaking of the apparent movement of the sun, the influence of its rays changes in accordance with the constellation of the zodiac lying behind them. And spiritual science likewise shows us ever more clearly that the human ego similarly passes through various phases of its experience in such a way that it exercises a different influence on the physical body in each phase. As spiritual science indicates, one is aware that the sun works differently upon the earth depending on whether it is passing, for example, through the constellation of the ram, of the bull, or some other constellation. One therefore does not speak of the sun in general terms, but of the sun's influence from the twelve constellations, of its passage through the twelve signs of the zodiac. And one can then indicate the relationship of the ever-changing ego to the ceaselessly mobile influence of the sun. We can understand all that has been briefly outlined here and is further described in Title Occult Science as something that can be acquired in the form of soul-spiritual knowledge. We may regard it as something that takes place in the depths of the human soul and remains unconscious, while, nevertheless, occurring in such a way that it represents an inner experience of the spiritual forces of the cosmos as manifested in the fixed stars and planets. Let us compare all this that spiritual science imparts to us as the mysteries of the universe with a Melanesian tale, of which I shall give a brief outline. On the road there lies a stone. This stone is the mother of Quattle. Quattle has eleven other brothers. Once Quattle and his eleven brothers have been created, Quattle begins to create the present world. In this world that he created, there is no distinction between day and night. Quattle now hears about an island where there is a difference between day and night. He journeys to this island and brings some beings from this island back to his own land. And through the influence of these beings, those in his land gain access to the alternation between sleep 
and waking consciousness and sunrise and sunset become soul experiences for them. It is remarkable what echoes from this story. If one studies it in its entirety, there is in every sentence something of the association with world mysteries. Just as what the soul experiences from spiritual science is deeply in tune with it, it is indeed the case that the sources of the mood and diction of fairy tales reside in the depths of the human soul. These tales are narrated in the form of pictures because outward events have to be used in order to help to give spiritual nourishment for the hunger that rises up from the experiences that have been characterized. We also have to say that we are very far removed from the experiences, but we can sense an echo of them in the images of fairy tales. If we keep this in mind, we no longer need to be surprised that the most beautiful, most characteristic fairy tales have come down to us from those ancient times when human beings still had a certain clairvoyant consciousness and were therefore more easily able to gain access to the wellsprings of fairy tales. And it is also not surprising that in those regions of the earth where people are in their souls closer to these sources than they are in the West, for example in India and in the East in general, fairy tales can have a far more distinctive character. We will, moreover, not find it surprising that in the German fairy tales that Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm collected in the form that they were able to hear them from relatives or others, often simple, unsophisticated people, we find stories that hark back to those times of European life when the great heroic sagas originated and that the fairy tales contain features that we also find in the great legends of gods and heroes. Nor should we be surprised when we hear that it has subsequently emerged that the most significant fairy tales are older than the great sagas. For the sagas are about people at a certain time of life and in a particular situation, whereas what lives in a fairy tale is of universally human concern and relates to the human soul from its first to its last breath through all ages of life. Nor will it surprise us if a fairy tale may, for example, present a picture of something that is familiar as a deep experience of the soul, that overwhelming feeling when awakening of helplessness in the face of the forces of nature, to which one feels equal only if one's soul is comforted with the knowledge that there is within one something greater than oneself that enables one, in a certain sense, to be victorious over them. If one senses this mood, one will also understand why giants that people have to deal with appear so often in fairy tales. Why do these giants feature as they do? They are, of course, a picture of this mood that assails the soul when it wants to enter its physical body again in the morning and sees the, for the soul, gigantic nature forces residing there. The battle that the soul is aware of is, from the soul's point of view, wholly rightly portrayed in the many battles that people fight with giants, even if it is beyond the intellect's powers of understanding. When it is confronted with these battles, the soul realizes that it has only one advantage in this situation, namely its shrewdness or cunning. For the soul's perception is that it can re-enter its body, but what can it do in the face of these mighty forces of the universe? And yet it is aware that it has one thing that giants don't have, and that is its cleverness, its powers of reason. This lives unconsciously within the soul, even when it knows that its strength is small when compared with the mighty forces of the universe. And we understand the position that the soul is in when it expresses the mood that has been characterized in pictorial imagery of the following kind. A man is going along a road and comes to an inn. In the inn he orders a bowl of milk soup. Flies that were buzzing around fly into the soup. He eats up the soup and leaves the flies on the side of the plate. Then he brandishes the plate and counts the flies that he has killed and boasts a hundred with one stroke. The innkeeper hangs a medallion around his neck that says he killed a hundred with one stroke. Then the man goes further along the road, enters another region, and comes to a castle 
where a king is looking out of the window of his castle. He sees the man with his medallion and says to him, I can make good use of him. He takes him into his service and assigns him a quite particular task. He says to him, quote, My country has been invaded by packs of bears. If you have killed a hundred with one stroke, you can surely also get rid of those bears for me. Close quote. The man says, I'll do it. But before he encounters the bears, he first wants his reward and plenty of food, for he thinks to himself that if he doesn't manage, he might as well enjoy himself until then. When the time comes for the bears to approach, he gathers up all the available food and other good things that bears like to eat. Then he prepares to meet the bears and makes everything ready for them. The bears come and eat until they have fully gorged themselves, and as they lie there helpless, he kills them one by one. The king comes and sees what he has achieved. The man says, quote, Yes, I simply got the bears to jump over my stick and cut off their heads in the process. Close quote. The king is delighted with this and gives him another task. He says to him, Look, quote, The giants will soon be returning to my country and you must help me with them. Close quote. The man promised to do so. And when the time came, he again took with him plenty of good food and also a lark and a piece of cheese. He then met the giants and regaled them with a conversation about his strength. One of the giants said, quote, We'll show you that we are stronger, close quote, and he took a stone and ground it to powder in his hand. Then he said to the man, quote, That is how strong we are. What power do you have to match ours? Close quote. The other giant took an arrow, shot it off, and it went so high that it was only a long time after that it came down again. Quote, That's how strong we are, he said. I bet you can't do that. Close quote. Then the man who had killed a hundred with one stroke said, quote, I can do far better than that. Close quote. He took a little piece of cheese and a stone and took pains to smear it with cheese and said to the giants, quote, I can squeeze water out of the stone. Close quote. And he squashed the cheese so that water spurted out of it. The giants were astonished at the strength that enabled him to squeeze water out of the stone. Then the man took the lark and let it fly upward and said to the giants, quote, Your arrow came back in the end, but my arrow is going so high that it will never come back. Quote. And indeed the lark did not return. The giants were so astonished that they were agreed that they could only overcome him with cunning, since they no longer thought that their giant's strength was sufficient for the purpose. However, they failed to outdo the man in cunning, and instead he outwitted them. When they were all asleep, he put a pig's bladder over his head that was blown up and filled with blood. The giants said to themselves, quote, We can't overcome him while he's awake, so we'll deal with him when he's asleep. Close quote. When he was asleep, they attacked him and broke the pig's bladder, and when they saw the blood gushing out, they thought that they had finished him off. Soon after, they went to sleep, and they slept so peacefully that the man was able to put an end to them as they slept. In spite of the fact that this fairy tale, like many dreams, has some unclear and unsatisfactory aspects, we have here displayed before us the battle of the human soul against the forces of nature, first against the bears, in quotes, and then against the giants, in quotes. But there is also something else in this fairy tale. Our conception of the man who killed a hundred with one stroke is such that we can feel an echo of what lives in the unconscious depths of our soul, in that he can always be assured, through his cleverness, of being able to master the stronger forces that he inevitably experiences as gigantic. It is not good if one interprets what has been portrayed artistically in pictures, wholly abstractly, and in its separate aspects. And this is not the intention here. But nothing of the character of a fairy tale is destroyed if one is aware that it is a reflection of processes occurring deeply within the soul. These processes are such that, however much one can know of them through spiritual research and in other ways, one is aware of their primal and elemental nature when one becomes ever and again entangled in them and experiences them in the manner described. And no knowledge of whatever kind can destroy the ability to transform what one experiences in the depths of the soul into the magic of the fairy tale world. Thus it is certainly stimulating for the spiritual researcher to discover in fairy tales what the soul needs on account of these profound experiences. 
At the same time, the fairy tale mood is not destroyed. For someone who, by relating to the essential nature of a fairy tale, arrives at a deeper insight into the wellsprings of subconscious life, will find there something that is impoverished for ordinary consciousness when it is described purely abstractly. And he finds that the way that these deepest of soul experiences are portrayed in fairy tales is far more comprehensive. One can then understand that Goethe expressed what he could experience so richly, and what Schiller presented in the form of abstract philosophical concepts in the meaningful and multifaceted images of his title fairy tale of the green snake and the beautiful lily. Hence Goethe, in spite of the intensity of his thought life, chose to give expression to what he experienced of the unconscious depths of the life of the human soul in the pictures. And because fairy tales have so intimate a connection with the soul and with what is so closely affiliated with its inmost nature, they are of all forms of literature the most appropriate for a child's consciousness. They are able to bring to expression the deepest spiritual wisdom in the simplest form. People may come to feel that in the whole of conscious artistic life there is no greater art than the one that traces the path from the unfathomable depths of soul life to the charming and often playful pictures of fairy tales. When what is most difficult to understand can be expressed in the most understandable forms, this is art of the greatest and most intrinsic kind, an art that is intimately connected with human nature. And because in the child man's being is linked in so primal a way with existence as a whole, children need fairy tales as nourishment for their souls. It is also the case that what is imbued with spiritual power can work more freely within the child. If the child's soul is not to lose its vitality, this should not be entangled in abstract theoretical concepts and must retain its connection with what is rooted in the depths of existence. Thus there is nothing that brings a greater benefit to the soul of a child than to nourish it with that which links the roots of human life with the roots of existence as a whole. Because the child is still having to work creatively on its own formative processes, because it still has to unfold its formative forces for its growth, for the development of all of its attributes, it experiences so wonderful a degree of nourishment in the pictures of fairy tales in which it is connected at a fundamental level with existence. And because even when a person is mainly taken up with rational and intellectual matters, he can never be torn away from the roots of existence. And because even in the very midst of life he is connected most intimately with them, he will gladly return to fairy tales at any age of life if he is of a healthy open-hearted mind. For there is no age of life or human situation that could alienate us from what streams from fairy tales. Indeed, we would be abandoning the deepest and most important aspect of our human nature if we no longer had any sense for that part of ourselves which is unfathomable to the intellect, but which comes to expression in genuine fairy tales and in the simple, artless, primordial mood associated with them. One can, therefore, understand that people such as the Brothers Grimm, who devoted many years to making the culturally veiled fairy tales that they derived from the popular folk tradition, available to humanity as a whole, had the feeling from the way that they lived with them, as opposed to anything that they might have learned through spiritual science, that they were giving to the world something that belongs intrinsically to human nature. It is therefore apparent that, although a narrowly intellectual culture has done so much to alienate the human soul, and also the souls of children, from fairy tales, such collections of fairy tales as those of the Brothers Grimm have found their way to all people who are receptive to such things, and that they have become the common property of not only every child, but of the hearts of everyone. This will become increasingly the case as spiritual science ceases to be a mere theory and becomes a mood that leads the soul increasingly to feel a oneness with the spiritual roots of its existence.
Thus the dissemination of spiritual science will confirm what true collectors, lovers, and tellers of fairy tales wanted to achieve. This is exemplified by things that a devoted friend of fairy tales often said in his lectures, which I was myself enabled to hear, words that can be a means of summarizing what results from a spiritual scientific consideration of fairy tales, such as has been presented today. We can summarize it in words which that man, who understood how to love, collect, and value fairy tales, spoke in his lectures, and was always glad to do so. Fairy tales and legends are like a good angel who is given to a person from his birth, from his home on his earthly path through life, in order to be his trusted companion, and through this companionship makes it possible for life itself to be a truly inwardly and sold fairy tale. The end of Lecture 10